0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. My name is Reginald Harris. Um, I was a long-time member of the uh, Pratt Library staff, um, and despite what Judy Cooper thinks, I did not actually work for her, but I was in the... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I was in the technology department, um, but... Uh, When I should have been fixing people's computers, I was actually over here helping Judy with her programs. Um, I am currently at Poets House in New York, the 60,000-volume library and literary center in lower Manhattan, where I am still in IT, the IT director. And also in charge of the Poetry in the Branches program, which uh, encourages libraries, public libraries around the country, to uh, buy more poetry, offer more poetry programs, and helps librarians get over whatever uh, uncertainties they might have about poetry. It is a very great pleasure to be back uh, home here in Baltimore and back home at the library, and to welcome uh, Richard Blanco. Uh, Richard uh, Blanco will be here to uh, discuss his new, mem- his new memoir, uh, Prince of Los Cocoyos. I actually pronounce it correctly, which is amazing. Um, on his website, uh, Richard Blanco uh, on the bio section says, made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, imported to the USA. Um, that lets you, a little, lets you know a little something about him and also actually about the, the flavor uh, of his book. Um, uh, Richard Blanco's biography is filled with firsts and superlatives. Um, most recently, or I guess most celebratedly, I suppose, if that is a word, the youngest, the first Latino, the first immigrant, the first gay man, and the first engineer to be inaugural poet. Um, and I will say that my own first experience with him was uh, started back in um, 1988 when I read uh, City of a Hundred Fires, this book that won the Agnes Glinch Starrett Prize, so I have been following him, uh, not in a stalkerish kind of way, but still as a poet kind of way, ever since then. Um, at the beginning of this warm, moving, uh, funny, and truly delicious Uh, memoir he admits that this is a poet writing so he warns you right off the bat quote my poet soul believes that the emotional truth of these pages trumps everything read as you would read my poems trusting that this that what is here is real beyond what is real that truer truth which we come to call a life it is a true pleasure to uh, spend time with uh, with Blanco's family and uh, the village that raised him, El Pueblo Entera. Uh, Miami comes alive in these pages uh, as so much pop culture of the time, which I also remember, like I also was watching I Love Lucy reruns. and um, I didn't have the thing with the cheese, though, but but I had some of the other same experience um, and his wonderful explanations of America uh, to, to his abuela which we will hear a little bit uh, today and uh, the sense of living in two worlds that desire to be American the constant pres- uh, presence of the past um, and also riding in a car hating your parents music that's playing on the 8-track player mounted under the seat. Um, in Uh, At Poets House, we have a uh, we had a program. I actually still have a program. We don't uh, do very much of it with anymore, but uh, still, it's still there. The collection is still there, called uh, "One City, Many Voices," which is a collection of poems about the immigrant experience that we use uh, in schools, high schools, in. English has second language classes, which is an interesting translation project. That this is written, Part of this is written in a, in a language that the uh, person in the class might know, and they translate it back into English. Everyone in the class translated back into English, and so that's one way to learn. And one of the poems in that packet is uh, Richard Blanco's Mexican Almuerzo in New England. And is a poem that ends uh, with these lines, feeling what we all feel. Home is a forgotten recipe, a spice we can find nowhere, a taste we can never reproduce. Exactly. Uh, raised and educated in Miami, he uh, received an engineering degree from Florida International University and later an MFA, also from Florida International. As I mentioned in 1998, his uh, first book, City of a Hundred Fires, won the Angle- Ang- Ang- Agnes Lynch Starrett Prize from the University of Pittsburgh. His other books include Directions to the Beach of the Dead, uh, which won the Beyond Margins Penn American Center Award, Looking for the Gulf Motel, and of course the inaugural poem, Won Today, which he delivered at uh, President Obama's second inauguration in January 2013. Um, this is a real thrill and an honor, and a pleasure, and a joy uh, for me to welcome Richard Blanco to the Pratt Library and to
1: Baltimore. Um, I I gotta get it set up here somehow. (laughs) Um, Welcome everyone, thank you, Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Although I, I didn't work for Judy. Um, <laughs> I did, I did work at a library actually for uh, for a few years in my twenties as a library page, um, and it's where I got to know about Cuba and lizards and opera and all this stuff. And I always used to get in trouble because I'd just sit in the aisles and reading books. So libraries has always had sort of a very special place in my heart for that reason. Um, and um, it's wonderful to be in the library. It's wonderful to have the space that brings us together in the name of literature, in the name of, of poetry in my case, even though this is a memoir, but still in the name of poetry. Um, in the ways that uh, that literature is meant to be shared, right, around this proverbial campfire uh, where we get to learn we get to learn in a different way than just reading the book at home. So I hope that's the experience you take home with you. And it's often, it's this weird irony of art that sometimes we learn in that in that storytelling sorry sometimes we learn more by listening to someone else's story than telling our own story I know that happens to me this idea of when when you take a step back and and you're not sort of of so engaged but when you see yourself mirrored in someone else's story there's something wonderful that happens in that exchange of art and I think that's what keeps us addicted as readers so I hope I hope this uh, to what I offer you today I hope serves as some kind of mirror for you to look into as well they say that every every writer or every poet is in some ways always writing the same poem or the same story over and over again And what that means, of course, figuratively, is that that I think every artist is somehow obsessed with, has a unique unique obsession around which their whole body of work revolves around. And every poem and every story or every canvas or every sculpture is in some ways an attempt to dimension some piece of that obsession to perhaps answer a question about that obsession and ask hopefully great new questions about that obsession. Uh, My obsession in a word is home. And all that that loaded word brings with it—everything in terms of family, culture, place, uh, identity, country—all those sorts of—all those sorts of dimensions that 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 calls to mind. And it's no wonder, as Reggie said, that it was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. It's an obsession that began perhaps even before I was born. Um, my mother left seven months pregnant from Cuba, so I was made in Cuba, conceived in Cuba. My soul is Cuban. And uh, then I was born in Madrid. And 45 days after after uh, I was born, we emigrated to the United States, to first to New York City and then eventually to Miami, where this book takes place. But as I look back on my life, um, I find it ironic, uh, sort of a foreshadowing of the things that would obsessed that little Ricky would grow up to be obsessed about again this idea of home and identity and all the rest by the time I was 45 days old I belonged to three countries Um, I had lived in two world-class cities my newborn photo which is this photo here on the right was my green card photo um, and then to sort of screw with me even further, they kind of threw in the Eiffel Tower and the Swiss Alps in there. So I, I would look at this picture, and when I was a kid, I was like, "Mom, was I born in France?" I'm not. <laughs> I'm confused. They're like, "No, you're Spaniard." I'm like, "But weren't we from Cuba?" She's like, "Yeah, but you were. You sort of." <laughs> There's like this, it, it was before you know days old. I think these things were already running uh, through my head in some ways. Um, to add further to that script and that narrative, we moved to Miami. Um, and as anybody has been to Miami, we know it's a very particular and unique, unique place. And the best way I describe it, um, it was like growing up between two imaginary worlds. One was the 1950s and 60s Cuba of my parents and my grandparents and the community at large. This this paradise we came from, um, where the mangoes were juicier, where the salt was saltier, and the sugar was sweeter, and and the beaches were real beaches, not this landfill of Miami Beach with all these weeds in it and this wonderful place that was the homeland that I was from but never been to so we're like okay so it felt real but at the same time completely imaginary and the other the other place that wasn't so obvious as anybody that's been to Miami can testify we love saying we love living there because it's so close to the united states and you don't you don't you don't you don't, you don't need a passport and what that means is that basically I grew up in a very undiverse community, if that makes sense to you. I grew up in a really monolithic sort of Cuban community. So America still felt like this other place, not quite, not, not, we weren't quite there yet. And how I t- contextualized or fantasized about America more than the average little kid was, because of the circumstances I was in, was obviously through TV shows and commercials and food, which will be the first excerpt. So this was kind of my life. Um, <laughs> This was like my fantasy, my American fantasy, fantasies to someday be in that Grady Bunch grid, and like, I really, really believe that north of the Dade County line, everything was this Brady Bunch world, and then this is Thanksgiving at my at my house you know a lot of spandex and uh, and salsa dancing so Little Ricky is sort of like going, what the hell is going on here? And that's the exact sort of psychological, both the physical and psychological setting of the Prince of Los Cucuyos*. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the title later. Um, that's exactly what what you'll see in, especially in the first few couple chapters. This idea of Little Ricky, as I call myself, sort of negotiating and navigating, his trying to find his mythic America in the first chapters. That place that you know he really wants to belong to. Um, because I'm not sure if it's really understood that, in general, or at least it's been my certain experience and the experience of many of of, of my uh, my my generation, I guess, but you know, we don't grow up loving our culture um, it, because it's your parents. I mean, anything your parents do is complete grounds for rejection. You're dancing salsa on Thanksgiving. Oh no, we're not. I'm not dancing salsa. You know, you you like this kind of music? No, you you like you speak Spanish? Oh no, I don't want to speak Spanish. You know, so there's an initial sort of rejection of your your culture, and and I'll get to more about that later. But the idea is, I wanted to be that little American boy somehow, and and one of those ways, one of those. Obsessions was Win Dixie. <laughs> Do we have Win Dixies in here? In the, so, so, yeah, but you know the you know the supermarket, yeah. So um, this was like the, there was a Win Dixie in the middle of this this w- Westchester where, where I grew up called West um, and it was this like it loomed large in my in my imagination as like only you know where they all the Américano shop all these great exotic foods as you'll hear about. And that's my grandmother on the the female, obviously, in the picture. You should just notice how close she's she's clutching her pocketbook and me looking away from her. (laughs) So here we go. I think everybody knows abuela means grandmother and abuelo means grandfather. Every day after Abuela and Abuelo picked me up from school, she chased after specials on name brands and daily staples at one of three Cuban bodegas she frequented. Abuelo would pull his lawn chair from the trunk and camp under a palm tree in the bodega parking lot, smoking a cigar and reading a Spanish translation of a dime store western in the shade while he waited. Abuela would tuck her beaded coin purse in her brassiere, a tip she had picked up from New York puertorriqueñas who had taught her how to guard her cash against would-be muggers. She'd march into the store de jour, bouncing in her crepe-soled orthopedic shoes with me in tow. Some days we went to La Sorpresita, the little surprise, the smallest of the three bodegas. Some days we went to El Gallo de Oro, the golden cock, where the Cuban bread was ten cents cheaper than any place else. And other days to La Caridad, named after the patroness of Cuba, Our Lady of Charity. The neon virgin flashing halos above the cap above the canopy was so lifelike that Abuela would insist I make the sign of the cross before going inside. And every single week I'd beg Abuela to, to go to El Wind Dixie instead, but she refused to set place foot in the place. There's none of our food in El Wing Dixie. Only los Americanos shop there, Abuela sneered. It's too expensive anyway, she'd complain, dismissing my pleas, until the day she spotted a Winn-Dixie circular in the mail advertising a special too tempting for Abuela to ignore. Whole roasted chicken, its drumsticks crowned with fancy paper hats, and a banner beneath trumpeting its not-so-fancy price, whole fryers, 29 cents per pound. What does whole fryer mean? Abuela asked me. Pollo entero, I translated. De verdad, she said incredulously. At La Caridad, I pay 34 cents on special. I played on her piqued curiosity. See, si, Abuela, it's a great price for chicken. Increíble. You sure could save a lot of money. She agreed and left the circular on the kitchen counter instead of tossing it out with the rest of the junk mail that came in English. Few things intimidated Abuela. Among these were Black Magic Santeria and Americanos. As for Americanos, Abuela wouldn't go any place she perceived to be wholly American, at least not alone. This included the Social Security office downtown, any restaurant with English-only menus, fancy department stores like Burdine's, and most definitely not Winn-Dixie. But Abuela also couldn't resist a bargain. The following week, the chicken appeared in the mail at 26 cents per pound, three cents cheaper than the week before. And then 24 cents the week after that. The friars haunted Abuela. Her stinginess slowly overcame her fear of Americanos until, she, until finally she broke. Ay, mijo, will you go with me shopping at a Dixie mañana? She half asked, half-commanded, Of course, Abuela, no te preocupes, I'll go with you. Soon, I dreamed our pantry would be stocked with crunch berries, cereal, and Oreo cookies, our freezer stuffed with Swanson TV dinners and Eskimo pies, our fridge filled with Hawaiian punch and American cheese. The next day after school, Abuela instructed Abuelo to drive to El Windixi instead of La Caridad. A gigantic red neon sign marked its entrance, the red letters spelling out, Winn Dixie, the beef people, seeming to glow even in the daylight. What does the beef people mean? Abuela questioned me. I struggled for a translation that would make sense, but none did. La gente de carne, I finally offered. Como? How can that be? Abuela said, perplexed by the thought of people made of meat which is what my literal translation meant in Spanish. Hm. Why not the chicken people or the carne puerco people, she amused herself. Abuela tore the advertisement for the friar from the flyer and stuffed it into her coin purse, which she then stuffed into her brassiere and kissed Abuela goodbye as if she might not return. <laughs> Dios nos ampare, God be with us, she muttered. She said nothing until we reached the store entrance. Now take me straight to Los Pollos, and no talking to anyone, we don't belong here. The electric doors yawned open, I reached for a shopping cart twice as big as the ones at La Caridad, but Abuela tugged me back, saying, don't you dare, with her wide open eyes too anxious to speak. I could barely speak myself, not from fear, but from pure awe, I was finally in Winn-Dixie. The air-conditioned air smelled as crisp and clean as Lysol. Each of the ten checkout lines was numbered with an illuminated sign, and the cashiers all wore polyester uniforms. Instead of warped squares of linoleum, polished terrazzo floors gleamed, and soft violin music rained from the speakers in the ceiling. I was finally in America. We stepped into the produce section, full of fruits and vegetables I had never eaten or even heard of—brussels sprouts. Squash, Tangello's apricots, brussels sprouts, squash, tangello's apricots. I kept pronouncing them in my mind, trying to imagine the taste from the sound of their names. Pretending I was looking for the chickens, I deliberately wove us through every single aisle, <laughs> taking it all in, the cartoon faces on the seer boxes I'd seen only on TV, the frost like snow on the freezer cases, flavors of jello I never knew existed, raspberry, black cherry, soup made from cheddar cheese, from potatoes, from broccoli. I wanted to buy and taste everything I saw. But of all the things I had tried at Jimmy Dawson's house, my absolute favorite was easy cheese. And there, in the snack aisle, I saw it. "'Can you buy me this, abuela?' I asked, grabbing a can off the shelf. "'What's that?' she asked. "'It's queso, abuela, queso americano. "'Please, it's my favorite,' I begged. "'What?' "'Queso in una lata?' she questioned, "'unable to fathom the, the idea of cheese in a can. "'But I could tell from the tone of her voice that she was intrigued. "'Look,' I said, spraying a dab on my finger and licking it off.' You don't even have to put it in the refrigerator. She looked at me, at my finger, at me, at the can, at my finger, and then back at me. ¿Qué cosa? ¿Cómo inventan los americanos? She marveled at the ingenuity of Americans. Let me taste, she asked, holding out her index finger. Ay, qué rico. She paused. But then questioned, But how much is it? Taking the can from a hand to look at the price, un peso 35, bueno, okay, but only if you promise to eat it all. I don't want to be wasting food. But let's get a fresh one, mijo, she said, putting the can back on the shelf and taking a new one. This, you know, when you write something, um, it's always such a great surprise to hear what what people connect to and somehow this was not on my radar some, somehow like this universal moment I mean this is like cross cultural, cross sexuality cross it's, it's, it's international apparently this behavior but it's one of those things that delight you right? with, with writing right these things that nobody ever sort of said and, and I thought it was just I didn't think it was going to be a moment and it just seems to be this, this wonderful moment for, for readers so here we are real quickly back finally at the checkout counter we plopped down all ten of our chickens and my easy cheese on the conveyor belt the cashier was polite and American no doubt judging from her name tag Beatrice, not the Spanish Beatrice. After ringing up two chickens, Beatrice paused. I'm sorry, are you together, she asked. Yes, I answered. Well, you can only take two chickens. I'm sorry. Knowing something had gone wrong, Abuela got panicky. She reached into her brassiere and pulled out the flyer from her coin purse. Chicken? Chicken, twenty-four cents. Chicken. She began rambling before I had a chance to translate the matter. Chicken, chicken. She continued, pointing at the photo of the friar. Beatrice showed her the fine print that read, "Limit two per customer." But I will. I didn't care. Chicken, twenty-four cents. A special chicken. Growing impatient, Beatrice reached for the public address mic and paged the manager. Mr. Quigley to register five. <laughs> Mr. Quigley, register five, please. I was mortified. Finally, becoming aware of the scene she was making, I pulled a pipe down and I was able to explain. Que cabrones. Que barbaridad, she complained, looking sadly at the eight chickens on the counter, on the conveyor. Bueno, okay, we'll take this one yet. Yes, she said. What about this, Beatrice said, holding up the can of easy cheese. Yes, I yelled, but Abuela Bart, I am not buying anything else here. She paid with exact change, and we whisked ourselves away with our two chickens, esos americanos de mierda, and their rules, trying to trick me. This is worse than Cuba, she grumbled all the way back to the car, slamming the door. ¿Qué pasó, Abuelo? I Nada, nada, chico. Let's go to La Caridad. I'm never coming here again. Pa la mierda with these beefy people. She shouted as Abuelo drove away. So let's. That's my grandmother. (laughs) She's a. she, she uh, as I like to say, she's the smartest and the dumbest person I ever met. She was my greatest teacher and my mortal enemy. The, she was the most generous and the most selfish person in the world, the most hideous and the most uh, friendly person in the world. She was a complex character in ways that I, that I learned uh, in the book as writing through it. And uh, there's a lot more to her character as well, including moments that weren't so funny. So. Um, uh, we're not there yet. I can't finish yet yeah. <laughs> So, um, so I just wanted to take you through a few characters uh, rather than read longer excerpts. I just wanted to show you some of the people you might meet in the book and some of the background. Um, uh, this is my mother, um, and I was explaining earlier. This is one of my favorite pictures of her in Cuba uh, by the sugar mill reservoir. Um, but I wanted you to pay attention to one of her, those Pierre Cardin sunglasses, <laughs> but also her bag, which becomes mythic in the in the in the in the memoir it's her in case por si las moscas bag in case of the flies bag which is an idiom from Spanish that means to be prepared for the absolute worst, like plagues of flies. So the woman had she would be great at let's make a deal. She had one of everything in the bag. I mean a roll of toilet paper, band aids, mosquito repellent, um, those little wet naps that you always swipe from the Kentucky fried chicken, you plastic forks, I mean uh, I mean, you name it, she had it, and depend on the occasion, including a pistol that she took on her first trip to, thank, uh, to a Disney World in chapter Three, in case there was a band of crazy Americanos would attack the car because we we're going into uncharted territory. But what I learned in writing the book is that her psychological response to this right? she's this really the warden of the family, the one that controls everyone and everything, in a different way than my grandmother does. She was a control freak, a worry warden. It was my mother left her entire family in Cuba, her entire family, every single eight of her eight brothers and sisters, her mother, every cousin, every aunt, every uncle. And back then, you didn't know if you were ever going to see these people again. And I think that her psychological response to that was to control her, her life and her world as much as she could because she couldn't lose one more thing. You know, not even not even a band aid. You know, she couldn't stand any more any more loss and 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 or any more instability. And so I kind of learned that about her in the book. Um, there's also another character. There's three characters in here. Me with that Mickey Mouse shirt. Either I had ten of them or um, I wore the same one over and over again in every photo. But there's three characters here, and one is El Malibu, which also takes on mythic proportions in the book. It's the Malibu, El Malibu, which was my dad's first brand new car, you know, the American dream, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a horrible episode at the end of the Disney World trip with it, with me in the car. But um, that's my dad. And my father, obviously, is a character book, much quieter guy. As my, you know, he paid more attention to the car than than most of us. And it was a comment on that sort of generation of men, and especially when you add in the Latino sort of machismo and that sort of. So he's a very quiet emotionally, a little bit emotionally handicapped, man, but there are moments in the book where when he says something there's, there's real significance for me and, and, and the story. There's also my brother who's six and a half years older than me and you know how that is if you have an older brother, uh, if you're two brothers, I think six and a half years is exactly the most terrible age to have children apart. <laughs> we were like, I mean it was impossible um, and now we're like best friends of course. But just always doing things to get at each other, including I would make my mother make us make my mother make us dress alike just to like bug him <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another character here, which is my cat. Um, this is me, obviously, you know, you know how much I loved how much little gay kids love little ink um, and and uh, of how much which of these two activities did little Ricky like best He can <laughs> easy SAT question there Um, but the cat is also a character because of course according to my grandmother the cat was gay well not that the cat was gay but I was gay because I had a cat Um, his cats are just gay Um, and so I put the cat in the book just to sort of bug her so he 's my little friend, and, and he also he, he comforted me. he did comfort me a lot when, in the, when, when there were sad times, um, specifically with issues of dealing with my sexuality and then there 's another character in the book, which is I like to I think it 's a very important I think Reggie touched upon this um, Miami part of my part of my motivation for the book was to show a side of Miami that perhaps has been forgotten. Because we all tend to think about South Beach and all the rest. But there was another Miami before that, as there was another Miami before my time. But I wanted that to really be highlighted. And um, there's one particular story um, uh, that takes place. We, we used to take staycations and go to Miami Beach from the west part of, of the city. And we are a poor working class family. And uh, there's one episode where I, where I befriend uh, an elderly Jewish woman named Yetta, and, and she teaches me all about her Miami Beach. And I get, little Ricky sort of learns a lot from her, sort of a little Harold and Maude kind of relationship. But it, I don't have a picture of Yetta, obviously, but I just wanted to bring this up. Uh, that's my grandmother all the way to the left. She's such a character. She's like this. Like... So this is known in the family as the Miss America photo. Um, LAUGHTER they're all sucking it in, and they're all. <laughs> 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 and and the, to, those two tias are also in that staycation story. So just one, I hope that's part of what you'll see. This is a cocuyo. Cocuyos um, are right there on the bottom of the, of the. They're a kind of. They're kind of a lightning bug, but they're technically classified as a beetle. But it's their eyes that light up. They're indigenous to the subtropics and tropics. And it's actually not a Spanish word. They use it in Spanish, but it's actually a, a mere Indian word. That's why it sounds weird and kooky. Uh, it doesn't sound quite like Spanish. But same idea of the magic. Used to trap them in jars with my father, and that's part of the title. But also, my my grand uncle's Cuban grocery store is called El Cocuyito, the little the little light the little firefly, and it's where little Ricky sort of. This is the, the other countercurrent that happens in the book, right? So he's chasing his mythic America. But while doing that, he's also sort of getting closer and closer to his ethnicity as a Cuban kid, right? Because he's learning a lot of life lessons, and it really takes off about halfway through the book where he, his, my grandmother puts me to work in, in the store. And it's in that village there for the Prince of Los Cocuyos, the customers and the other employees and, and the other family members that work there that I really sort of come culturally of age and also, sex, and that, it's not a coming out story, but it's a place where I first meet my first, a first have my first gay relation, platonic relationship. The first time I meet a gay man who actually I find out is gay and I don't even really know what that is. I know, but I don't know. Um, and a lot of things happen in that store and that's where that's hence that the title. So here's just a quick excerpt of how I got to work in the store. Um, this is Don Emiliano, and I'm sorry, uh, Don Gustavo's, um, and this is just a, a snapshot of the photo. I just love that photo of the all the colors and textures and smells that you can imagine what what that felt like for me. Again, here's my grandmother, and I'll, I'll read this excerpt, and then we can just maybe wrap it up and take some. I'll say a few more comments, and then we'll, we'll uh, yeah, well, it's about time. Um, what was I going to say? Yes, my grandmother, um, I'm going to read you another funny one, but I hate this, you know, the inaugural poet, you know, like I'm supposed to be com- constantly serious all the time. One today. Um, and I hope you understand from my poetry, there's always been this other side. So you can't be Cuban and not have this sort of tragic comic sense about your life and your writing. Um, but there are moments of gravitas. There's a whole sort of story behind, besides my grandmother and, and her, her hijinks, even though there's a lot of hijinks in the, in the, in the book as well. When I was younger, I was a finicky eater. You look like un gargajo, a piece of phlegm, skinny and frail, like a woman. Los hombres need to eat, Abuela insisted, and began fattening me up with a concoction of sweetened condensed milk mixed with Coca-Cola, all the easy cheese I wanted, double portions of rice and frijoles, negros at dinner, and mandatory desserts. But now that I was 20 pounds overweight... (laughs) She was mortified Bad enough being a sissy But a fat sissy? You have to lose all that gordura And so began her campaign to slim me down She made me ride bike ten times around the block every day after school And roller skate twice a week for an hour up and down the front walkway Wrapped in garbage bags So I could sweat the fat out She even agreed to my request for a pogo stick, just like the one my cousin Marlene had, after I convinced her that pogoing would be good exercise, although she immediately cut the plastic tassels from the handlebars. After weeks of watching Abuela torment me, Mama spoke up, albeit with caution. Bueno, he's not that fat, she told Abuela. He's more like Husky, she said mispronouncing the English words she had learned from the husky section of the boys' department at Kmart, where she brought all my husky clothes. <laughs> I was looking forward to the summer, running errands all day with my grandparents and their baby blue comet that smelled like oranges, playing Aquaman in Tia Ophelia's swimming pool, watching The Price is Right and reruns of I Love Lucy all afternoon, sitting on the couch in my underwear with my Ritz and Easy Cheese. But that all changed a week before school let out. What Ricky needs is hard work, a good trabajo. That will make him un hombre. He's old enough. It's time, Abuela announced at dinner, speaking to my parents about me in the third person as if I weren't sitting right across from her. Además, she continued, working he will lose weight so that his pee -pee will grow. (laughs) You know... If he doesn't lose all that fat before he turns 13, his peepee will shrivel up, become nada. I gulped. My peepee shriveled right then and there. (laughs) Except for Caco choking on his food as he tried to stifle his laughter, complete silence followed Abuela's announcement. She shoved another mound of black beans and rice onto her fork with her pudgy thumb, stuffed it into her mouth, and continued talking with her mouth full. Remember what happened to Juan el Bobo back in Cuba? I warned his mother, but she didn't listen. Then it was too late. He had to have an operation, and they still couldn't pull it out. <laughs> there was always some character Abuela knew in some town in Cuba who served as a perfect example of some good or bad fortune. She continued with her plan. Ya with Don Gustavo. He'll let him help out at a Cocuyito all summer for, 30, for 55 a week, then delivered her ultimatum. He goes to work. Also, you know, he goes back to baseball at Flagami. No, anything but baseball, I thought, flashing back to those dreadful 98 degree afternoons in left field, shooing away nets, terrified of fire ants, the fly balls I could never catch, and the booze every time I struck out at bat. I hated baseball, and I well knew it. She knew I wouldn't object to her, wouldn't object to working at a cocuyito given the alternative. Once again, my parents didn't protest. Bueno, we'll see was all mama could say to her. Maybe, vamos a ver, papa said, but I knew the deal was done. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just this is uh, my tia Gloria, who's Don Gustavo's uh, daughter, Who's a very strong female, matri- uh, uh, female character in the book, uh, in the store, and she really runs the whole story. But in typical, this is probably trans, uh, 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 transcultural, but in typical fashion, he thinks he's running the store, but she's running the whole story. Of course, as you can tell, she's like ordering here. But she's an oddball like me. She doesn't fit that stereotype of the little Cuban princess. The females sort of Cuban princess, and so me and her make this oddball great team. Oddball team. Um, and she becomes something special in my life. So this is just a scene. I hardly have any photos of the store. It's odd, but you know, compared to when, the when Dixie, where they hand you, you know, everything comes plastic wrapped, and these little magic hands would come from behind those mirrored things and just lay out beef all day long. In the store, you're just like, here's a just hang a piece of dripping blood. And you're like, you like this one? Like, <laughs> and they slice it up right in front of you, and actually probably tasted better. but And then, of course, I get dragged into a quinceanera. This is one of the cashiers that I worked with, um, uh, Sonia. I just love that picture. She looks like she's about to make love to that avocado. <laughs> and just to show people from California what a real avocado looks like. <laughs> um, and uh, this is her daughter. I and mean, I, I get wrapped up into this whole being her partner and at the quinceaneras and all this stuff. And again, Ricky now is from 12 all the way through 17. He works at the store. So it's where he becomes a man. It's where he becomes Cuban. It's where he starts realizing that that he's gay. I mean, though there's no language attached to it yet, but just a feeling, right? Because one of the things I really wanted to capture in the book that I think is unique and I don't know that that people who are not gay don't go through this, is that there is no language, at least back in my generation. You're so petrified and terrified. It's not like you're sitting there going, gee, I wonder if today, maybe I'll come out next weekend or next week, or it's just sort of this knowing without knowing, and there's just a thousand little things that happen throughout your life that eventually give you the courage to say, to come out, and coming out is really the result of a thousand, thousand little moments, and one of these moments is, dancing with this pretty girl, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I like the dress more than what's in the dress. And really fascinated by the hoop skirt and, like... And not wanting to be fascinated about it because I know my grandmother would like freak out if I said, oh, I I love the dress, you know, but, you know, knowing, negotiating that. So in a way, learning, negotiating my cultural identity in a way, the sexuality is a similar, and that's what I really became interested in the book, these, these sort of collisions of how all those things really happen at the same time, Right. So you can't separate the story of, of your cultural awakening and your cultural dawning from who you are, from your sexuality, from my artistic identity, which is also part of the book. Um, and I think that's what I tried to represent in this slide, though. Um, it just, the engineer in me is like going nuts with slides. It just so, <laughs> the idea, you know, the little Ricky here, the Cuba, the the american the engineer that all these things really start happening and all happen together throughout your rest of your life the idea that one's identity again my my obsession with identity and home and belonging that that is a wonderful recipe and it's a unique recipe to each of us and we we sometimes think that our lives as when i started writing this memoir i was like what's well, the big deal like what am i going to talk about you know and, and I hope that what you see in the pictures that all of our lives have this a unique recipe of the, those influences that go to make the incredible human being that each of you that each of you are um, and then just a couple more things we 'll do questions um, there 's a, a, a way a couple readers said one thing there they're like, I felt like I didn't have to go back on medication after reading your memoir in that sense that it's a hopeful story. Um, it's a story, um, it's a memoir that sort of, not that it doesn't have its its dark side and its shadows, but but it's it's a hopeful memoir and that Ricky comes out the other end all the better for it, um, for having experienced all this. Um, and then the other idea is that in, in that same line is that you sort of read it Conscious that this little hoosky kid who like just wants easy cheese and like watch Brady Bunch all day. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you know, that that in some ways the book is read in the light of sort of a great American dream story. At least it is for me. That moment. <laughs> that, 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 Every time I look at that, I freak out because that moment was, again, following that script. It's not even what it meant to me, but what it meant for so many thousands and millions of people with stories like mine. And that, in some ways, Little Ricky's dream sort of, in some ways, comes true and finally says... You are American. You always were American. Your mother's story, your easy cheese, your conga, your pork at Thanksgiving—all that was America all along, and and there's no reason to feel shy about it any longer. And so, and, you know, in a, in a way, I feel like America itself is has this arc of a coming of age story, right? You know, we're, America right now, on the sort of the historical scale, is probably at age like 15. Right, (laughs) because we're trying to figure it out too, together as a people, and we have really bad days and we have really bad years, and and but the idea that the American story, what I learned, that we're still writing that story, you know, and luckily we can still participate in it, and and um, there's chapters we want to forget, there's chapters we want to erase, but we can't because they lead to other important chapters, and that the idea that we get to we get to do that, and it doesn't have to happen in our lifetime. I mean, it's like a child almost. You know that child's going to keep on growing and being, um, and and I felt that about in this experience, that that narrative of this country is still being written, and it was such a beautiful feeling. But it's, and so is mine. Um, You know, I haven't stopped growing. So, you know, in a sense, (coughs) how everything sort of mimics itself and parallels itself in this human existence and experience, the same way a country becomes and is constantly becoming, so are we. Right, You never stop becoming. It's a universal function. They say coming-of-age stories, but a coming-of-age story is like every year. <laughs> I mean, I chose to end the book at 17 because it's a very significant moment where there is sort of a really watershed moment where now you're in college. It's an Amber Alert. We went through this before. <laughs> um, I, my phone is probably doing that, too. So, um, but... Um, you know, then you go to college, and you think you got it all down packed, and then you graduate, and then, or you might have your first serious relationship, and that falls apart, maybe, and you have another, you get married, and you might have children, and that's another thing. Just when you, oh, children are gone, everybody's away to college, and then they have children, you have grandchildren, and suddenly you're a grandfather, or a grand, grandmother now, and you have to renegotiate your own sense of being, right? What does it mean to be a grandparent? Suddenly you, like, and so I always compare it, I'll just close on this, that kind of you know, I, I compare it to sort of a mirage that's always just a few feet ahead of us in the road. And just when we think we know who we are, it just slips away from us. And then we think we know, we keep on chasing. And in some ways, we spend our life chasing after who we already are. And that's the way I see this book. One of those, I'm almost there. And, then it, and you'll see when the book ends, which is, I think, my proudest moment in the whole book, just, just slips right away from you. Oh we'll take questions.
0: <laughs> Are there any questions?
1: I think I can pass
0: this mic around.
1: Oh, sure. And Judy, does the library close at any particular time? Because I'm I'm here I'm good for as long as you know we, we can or want. Okay.
2: Sure. How am I doing this? No, I, I am Mike, so I can't pass. No. (laughs) No. No, First of all, I want to say that watching you at the inauguration with various members of my family, including a five-year-old grandson, was just a wonderfully profound moment. And I've listened to the poem—it's not a poem—it's you know such a profound statement so many times, and um, so I. I wanted to say that, and before I go on to a sort of more silly question, if sure, you sure. will. Uh, I grew up in the 50s, so the I Love Lucy show was a central part of growing up at that right. time. And, and, of course, her husband's name was Ricky Ricardo, and the little boy was Little, little Ricky. Little Ricky, yeah. And so, you know, I, and I never... Um, knew that you were Ricky <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because until you kept up, referred to yourself as Ricky. Yeah, that's what they actually um, call and, me. And, out, but I was wondering, did you, I guess you watched that show in reruns and did, oh, yeah. you, did it, how was that experience for you? Because it was set in the 50s and it was this Cuban guy and his wife and family, and how did you relate? Well, it, to that?
1: It, it really fed into my same mythic sense of America, right? So, so you would think that I would be attracted to Ricky Ricardo. Ricky Ricardo was like every corny uncle I had. Right. You know, it was like nothing new to me. Sure. I wanted to be Lucy. I want red hair. This is another fascinating. <laughs> okay, I had never seen red hair until I was like in my twenties. Okay, so. When they kept on saying red hair, I had no context for that because it was black and white. So oh, she was, the, she was my, my exotic, the one I want to – I feel like Lucy very often. And, and in some ways, the book uh, – TV affected me a lot in many ways, and, and, and I, think, I think episodically, if that's a word even in the memoir, you know, I think each chapter, I think of an episode where it can live by itself, you know you don't need to have everything else around it, but um, so that, in the same context, just like the Brady Bunch, it was her, and it was this idea of Irish, what the hell is Irish, is that American? I thought, well maybe that's American, you know, all these questions but it was she was the one that nobody knew and then he did represent and had a doorway into sort of the 1950s Cuba in a way that that was also a little bit more mythic, that whole sort of nightclub 50s yeah, thing. Yeah, he was a different kind of Cuban, right. as you mentioned. Yeah, he was pre-revolutionary, pre-revolutionary Cuban, which is, I imagine, that's what my parents were like, yeah. you know, as like Ricky Ricardo. Um, but the inaugural poem, too, I just want to say, like, what was important about it, too, I thought it was a, a much, you know, that now as I look back on it, because poems are weird. I mean, poems are amazing. They they teach you and they keep on even when you're the author and I realized it's one of the most personal poems I've ever written because it was still that wish I was wishing for all of you to sort of come together and see each other as connected and one and you know for at least the seven minutes that the poem was heard but I didn't realize that that was my wish as well that's that I was wishing you know it's this thing about art you know it's it's at once having a dialogue with yourself as well as having a dialogue with with the rest of the world And it wasn't until a few weeks or months after, I was like, this is the same obsession. You know, and even as the last stanza is like, and so we had home, home through the gloss of rain, the weight of snow. Well, it
2: had a perfect kind of purity that, um, not to be biased, that um, I would only hope would come out of an Obama inauguration. It just added to that spirit and joy and hope.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: coming around on this side. thank you um, I'm
2: really so glad I came I want to thank Michael for telling me you were going to be here I want to know how were you chosen to um, be the poet
0: at this inauguration and I also thought you were going to read one today, today.
1: I will if we have time I, I usually end on that So. <laughs> Yeah. Reggie, you, you let me know when it's time. It's okay. about, I need about seven minutes or sure. six minutes after that. Okay. Um, I don't know yet. It's still a mystery, uh, in part um, because I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I did meet with the president in the Oval Office in May after the inauguration. I almost asked him, but I, I didn't dare to, and he didn't offer to say. But um, it's probably a little more bureaucratic than, than I think. In my head, I imagine him like sitting in the Oval Office like absorbed with my poems and my... you know. <laughs> Telling his, you know, the press, the White House secretary, like cancel my meetings with Putin. I got to finish these books, <laughs> you know. Or him and Michelle snuggled in bed and reading my poems, you know. And all like, it's like, honey, we, we shouldn't we bring him for the inauguration? Wouldn't it be great for the inauguration? But I, at the end of the day, I always think, however it was, I'm sure they got X number of poems, probably, or maybe who knows? Maybe one of the girls read, you know, at school and brought back a home poem. Who knows? But at the end, of the day, I think what cinched the deal was that I always say if the president, you know, little Obama, <laughs> was probably going through these same questions, right? I mean, his biography is more complicated than mine. His, his questioning of what's his place in America, what's the American dream, who am I in this country, in the society, um, you know, culturally as well as racially and all the rest, he would have been probably writing very similar, you know. Themes along very similar themes, and I think probably at some time that's probably what sent the deal. I think, yeah. Sure.
2: Welcome. You've had many experiences, and that's what made you. um, That's great, and you have arrived. Much success.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. but there's still more. There's still a lot of work to be done, and I think, as I said, the obsession answers some questions, but then it asks new ones, and I think what I'm interested in now is to, again, thinking about what home means now in a, in a much more larger space, and about America and about us, and a little bit less of, even though the family is great to always talk about, and will always be part of the story, but thinking about a larger home with a capital H for us, and home as in what America means or what those promises mean to us individually. And you will
2: continue to write
1: and move on. Thank you.
2: I'm wondering who in your family has read your memoir and what they thought of it? Are you a writer? No, I'm Cuban.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you'll know this. Um, Luckily, I have a linguistic uh, buffer, right? Because my yeah. the elders don't read, won't read my work in English. My mother won't read my work in English. They have working knowledge of English, but they're not interested in. It's too hard for them to really get the, that that piece of it. My grandmothers passed away, my my fathers passed away, my grandfathers passed away, and my brother was the only one that I was really concerned about. So I did give it to him to read before before the first edit. And he was fine with it because he does come across as a little bit of a pain in the butt, uh, (laughs) and 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 really, it was me who was a pain in the butt. So I had to make myself look like a pain in the butt too. But I was a pain. I I was little Ricky, like that little picture in the front cover. That it's like you don't know if I'm smiling or about to bite (laughs) you. But um, so far so good. But um, I'm hesitant for the reasons I talked about presenting my mother in that way. That's the only one that really sort of has me shaky, um, I hope she's okay with that, um, even though she calls herself La Capitana, You know, so <laughs> I think she's aware of that. Um, but the memoir will probably be translated into Spanish, because unlike poetry, poetry never gets, you know, you have to win like a Pulitzer Prize or a Nobel Prize to have anybody interested in translating your work, uh, your books at least. But this has every possibility of being translated into Spanish. And so even while I was writing it, I was much more hesitant than with my poetry, and I was much more conscious about... But then again, I'm not really exposing anybody. I'm not really, you know, airing much dirty laundry, just characterizing people sometimes in not the best of light, but I think it's all in good, you know, in good humor. Yeah. And, and so I'm not worried about that in that sense, yeah.
3: Hi, I lived and worked in Miami in the 70s in media and at, at that time many of the Cuban expatriates of your parents' generations had thoughts of going back to Cuba, overthrowing Castro, going back. Yep. it was that sense of kind of uh, alienation that you kind of epitomize with your grandmother, the Americanos, and kind of a different culture. Talk a little bit about how Subsequent generations, despite the fact that there was this desire to, to go back to Cuba, that little Habana and Calle Ocho was kind of, as you mentioned, a separate entity from the rest of the, the United States. How people of your generation become, I guess, Americanized, for lack of a better way to, to describe it. And many of the people that I, I I knew coming up there also that are probably in your age group also seamlessly work their way into American society. How do you navigate that? And does your book address
1: that? Um, well, I, I, like navigation is the perfect... I mean, you can't... You have no choice but to navigate it in some ways because you have no memory of that past Cuba. And so, again, it's like this real but fict- fictitious place. And 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 the other becomes the attractor. So you want to... You, you're reaching for that mythic America. So you want a piece of that. But what happens in that... There's sort of a backflow that happens too... At 20-something, you're like, wait a minute, I am never going to be Peter Brady, and I never really wanted to be Peter Brady, or Marsha Brady in my case. I still might want to be Marsha Brady. And then that's where you start sort of really digging a little bit further back. And then you find a right balance, and everyone finds a a different kind of balance. Uh, My brother, to give you an example, my brother is not concerned about these issues, and he's a little less not that he's more Americanized than me, but he doesn't really get the Cuba, he doesn't, he, he's gone to Cuba once, but he doesn't really have the same attachment. And you'd think he was born there and lived there till he was six and a half years old. It's a natural process. It's something unique to what they call the middle generation, the bridge generation. Um, and I think it's a fascinating generation, and it's one of its kind, and that's, you know, part of, part of art is wanting to tell a story, part of being an emotional historian, right? I know that that generation's story, as I've tried to do in my poetry as well, is a unique slice that will never happen again. Well, it, will, it does happen in, for example, my cousins that have come from Cuba in the, eight, in the 90s and 2000s, they go through what my parents went through, but they're my generation, which is really weird, and then their children go through what I went through and they're like, Mom, like stop being so tacky, you know, like don't you you know, don't you know how to text, you know, this kind of stuff? You know, so the bridge generation is always this fascinating generation because they're in charge of translating, literally in some cases, holding a linguistic power over their parents which is amazing and wonderful. Um, they were at our mercy, like, so many times. I mean, You cross Dade County line, they were ours for the taking. They didn't know how to ask for directions. They didn't know how to order food. They didn't know how to, you know, the parent-child was reversed. And then we have to take the past and look at the future and sort of build the bridge between those two things for ourselves, for our communities, and... Um, and I think you, that's what the book is about. You sort of just feel your way through it. Um, again, there's an I- initial rejection and then a falling in love. And and um, initial then rejection, uh, what happens is the pendulum swings. or There is a period, which might be book number two or three, there's a period then I started sort of like really not liking America. Not America as a country, but... Oh, I'm Cuban, you know. I was like suddenly discovered like like some brand new suit that I had never worn before. I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna rumble my way everywhere, you know. Like, and then they swung back to somewhere in the middle because I was like, I went I went to Cuba and realized also that you know after my third trip to Cuba, the first one was fine, but the third one I was like, they really started getting my nerves, and that's how I knew they were family. Um, but then you realize that that's only half of you because you, you couldn't there are things in context that you can never be fully happy there and so you, you're always in this middle but what I found fascinating or what my lesson was through all this and this was that that story itself is the perpetual American story because it just keeps on happening over and over again and, and and how we continue to devise new senses of what American is or what it's not, how how it becomes, how how it continues to evolve and shape itself, and and by nobody's master plan, really, it's just sort of this organic way in which in which the country sort of keeps on asking. We're still asking the same questions that Whitman was asking, you know, in a way. I mean, to, Less than 300 years is nothing for a country. So that, that, that weaving, that, that trying to figure out what that American identity is, you know, is, is the very story that we're living right now, the very moment in the story, I think, that we're living in America. And what this also taught me is that suddenly people are sort of all coming out of the immigration closet, too. Like my partner's family are telling me all these stories about their, grandf- their Polish grandfather and their German grandfather, all these stories that they thought weren't important, it's so beautiful to hear. They have these beautiful memories that they kind of never shared with anybody because nobody told them it was important. You know, they were supposed to go, be American, go to college, and get a job in a cubicle and just be blank. It's it's one of my peeves. People keep on asking me. It was on MSNBC the other day about labels. There's this really interesting. When you don't have a label, people... People who don't have labels think that labels bother other people. <laughs> and like, Let's talk here for a minute between labels and stereotypes. I love my labels. I wear them proudly. They're my story, and nobody's going to take them away from me. I can call myself whatever the hell I want. And what am I supposed to say? I'm a Slovenian straight man? I'm, I'm a gay Cuban engineer. I mean, my what, what am I supposed to say? Now, let's not... If you're going to go there and say, oh, you know do you wear rumba, rumba shirts all day long? Like, like, no, 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 I'm not Ricky Ricardo. And then I, if I have the patience, and you know, I usually do, and I have the, the moment to educate, and that's really where, where, when people are on, I said this today on, 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 uh, on uh, the, uh, I forget the call letters, on um, uh, the NPR, yeah, you know, that um, when you have, when there's a genuine interest about people learning about other cultures, that's really what you call inclusion. But don't, I don't expect everybody to know about the Bay of Pigs and, like, and about um, you know, my whole Cuban culture. And my, how could you? Any more than I would know about what it feels like to be a Ukrainian. But real diversity and real sharing is storytelling. Oh my God, what was that like? What was your family like? You know, What did you do? And then I'll tell you what my life was like. And that, that honest sharing, uh, I think, anyway, I'm, I'm going off topic, but <laughs> that's, what, that's the Cuban in me. <laughs> Um, oh, he's in. Oh, oh, where are you, Reggie? Sorry. I'm back here. Oh, sorry.
4: Okay. Um, I, the, the, the things, the, there were four things w- when you spoke tonight that I thought were, were really interesting. The first thing that struck out, stuck in my mind was that you disliked baseball. I did too. I hated baseball. It was so embarrassing. I was always hoping that I would either get like four balls and I'd get walked. <laughs> and um, That was a
1: good day. Yeah, that was a good day. And it was
4: really bad if it was like two to three or whatever that thing... Well, you can see how horrible it was. And um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was about your mother carrying all that stuff in a purse. My twin brother has lived in Berlin, Germany for 25 years. And and his entire family and everything is an ocean away. And when someone is that far away from your family... That's a very intimidating, perpetual situation, and and for not only I think for him, but I think for the people who love him. And um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is you're right. I mean, you're I'm think I'm six years older than you, and um, I'm a gay, and um, a gay. I'm a gay, <laughs> and but when I remember going into puberty, like you know, 14, 15, and realizing those feelings, and you're right, it's very, it's, it's interesting, because you realize there's something truly different, and, and you're not, you know, you don't want to kiss Linda, and, and I used to think, even when I was like a freshman in high school, I used to think I wished that other gay guys had like a little red flag, you know that would pop up on their head that only I could see,
2: right.
4: and and then finally, I think the thing that is 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 I think truly remarkable about you and your story, is I think it it says it says something special I think about this country, that you can come from, I, I think, uh, sounding like Semite, some certainly humble beginnings, and you know. Speak at a presidential inauguration, and you're right. It's a story I see over and over, and I think it. I think it speaks to the better. I think it speaks to the better nature of America, quite frankly.
1: Yeah, and I think that ability to change and adapt. It's not like we're perfect. And and the one thing I learned was that I came away from this was that those ideals are still intact. It's, it felt like in that ceremony, like they're in this little golden box, you know, that nobody. That the inauguration wasn't about. Beyonce. <laughs> it, in a, some ways, it wasn't even about the president. It's a sacred, the sacred moment that almost like we come together to renew our vows as Americans. And it's the sense of all that witness. This is all about witness, right? This is not because they're such Obama fans. This is about it. And another layer and a subtext of this is we're here to witness, to remind us, you, and everybody that this, who why you're up there. Whoever you are, President X, is because we're here. And it's this element of, of coming together in that spirit to celebrate that very moment, which is, doesn't seem as groundbreaking today. Can you imagine 250 years ago? There's no word in Spanish for inauguration. For I mean, it's <laughs> not the same term. They, they say, toma de posesión. And it's like taking of possession. <laughs> it took like two minutes to explain to my mom when I told, was able to tell her. She's like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, I don't my so, but I, I love that America, because of the way it was geared or wired, that it can change. And, and when we compare ourselves to perhaps European nations, it's not a fair comparison. It's taken them, uh, I don't know how many thousands of years, to, you know, to figure it out. I mean, and I think, again... Countries have lifespans and, and and they they have they have coming of ages and phases of life in a way and I do love that about America if you think about it that could not have happened just ten years ago. I could not have been chosen the The sentiment of the country the the, the political powers would probably have never. I mean, it just wouldn't. It just couldn't have happened. And ten years later, look where we are with so, on so many different things. Have we fallen back on some others? Yes. Have we failed to move forward on others? Yes. But, gosh, it's a hard job. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: Hi. Um, people write from different places. Some people write can only write when they're in sorrow. Some people write like irritation, like of an oyster making a pearl. Mm-hmm. What's your place?
1: Memory. And and I've learned to, to, people are like, you don't write every day, as like, I don't write that way. And I think it has to do with something culturally because there is just always this melancholy in my family, in my whole community, this, this something in the past. There's always something in the past that meant something to the present. There's always a sense of, again, we're, that past that we're going, and in some ways, they got stuck in the past, you know, and and then so there's always this sense of memory. And so I let things ferment a lot. I I rarely, I just let things sit in my head for sometimes years, like lines going over and over. It's like wine. I have to, and I have to have a distance from it. I have to write. I usually can't write about a city while I'm living there, and I move away, and like two years later, and start writing about my experiences. Memory is a big, 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 big source of and memory is to say the passage of time and also acknowledging one's lack of agency, one's mortality. We do that when we discuss memory, right? That nothing can ever stay the same. And you know.
2: um, As profound as, as the inaugural poem was, the poem that speaks to me the most is Killing Mark. Oh. <laughs> um, when I read that the first time, I thought... That's me. He know, you know, there's someone else who exists in this world who thinks like me.
1: Yeah. Oh, great.
2: Even though we have completely different experiences. So. Yeah. Well. Thank that, you for writing that. That's <laughs> that's sort
1: of what I was, what I you know you saw yourself in the mirror. The poem became a mirror, right? And and that to me is when art really transcends itself. So being an artist, I think in many in many art forms, there's an irony. One it's to write a poem is one or write a book is one of those most selfish, arrogant stupid things you can do in the world and yet at the one at the other hand it's the most in some ways one of the most gregarious selfless acts of love that you can do and you write when you write enough you start realizing that nobody that the what's beautiful about a particular story and you do have to make it particular and specific so that it becomes live alive but at the end of the day, whether you're Mark or me or you or whether you're Cuban and, or Mexican or if your great-great-grandparents came over on the Mayflower, we're all still talking about the same emotions. As i like to say, who has not had a dysfunctional Thanksgiving? It ain't just Cubans. In fact, the first Thanksgiving seems like a recipe for dysfunctionality to I me mean, to begin with. I mean, it's like you might as well have C- Cubans and, <laughs> and Russians even having dinner together. I mean, it's just like, it just, uh, um, but that we're always operating out of the same basic human emotions, right? Even Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare's West Side Story Shakespeare, retold all over again. Those perennial themes of what it means to be human are always what I'm writing from. The vehicle for that has to be a specific story, because if not, there's nothing to connect with. So, a movie is another sort of perfect example and I think artists and poems and storytellers operate in the same way. Uh, A movie, you know, one of my favorite movies is The Notebook, (laughs) (laughs) I would deny I ever said that, but that's not my story for it, it's a straight relationship, it takes place in the south, it takes place in another, I wasn't even born yet, and there I am crying because I may not know that time or that town or, but I know love, straight or gay, is love. Um, you know, it's, Whether you live in the South or not, everybody has longing, everybody has struggles, and we operate out of that. Sometimes to more success than others, depending on the poem or the story. Do you need the mic? Oh. Um,
2: I wondered if, if the book that you have written is the one that you set out to write? Uh, or whether, during the course of the writing, it took some surprising turn for you
1: it took it took uh, the hardest part the harder part to write was towards the end um, because the childhood stuff is a little is a little blurrier and therefore in some ways a little easier to write because you 're not writing with as much intimidation that did I get it exactly right because you just can 't always get it exactly right because there 's holes in there 's holes in in memory right but um I, I did always became, well, I followed an organic process. The worst thing you can do is, I'm going to write a book about this. I had an instinct, and I wrote the first piece, and then I thought about it a little bit more and thought about it a little more. But I was interested in how, how those three things braid together. One is your cultural identity, your sexuality, and my artistic identity. How those three very important parts of what are human beings, how those stories collide, intersect, Converge, diverge, bump up against each other and realizing that it's really one story happening all at the same time and I think I was successful in that. The later stuff mostly about sexuality was very hard to write um, because of what I was saying earlier. They had no language for it so I couldn't consciously sit there and Ricky's thoughts was how do you say that without saying it and it was this, I had to use very it was very slippery and that was that I hadn't I didn't know I was going to stumble upon that, and that I'm very proud of because it's one of the the hardest things to get right, I think, that just, it's the sense of being different and knowing you're gay, but not even having language to say that, just knowing, putting that language at bay until you're ready to even speak those words in the privacy of your own mind. And then, then, well, I guess we'll get this way.
3: Um,
1: Given that home is
0: is an important theme for you in this book, I'm... I'm noticing that you don't live in Miami now and I'm curious you know what went into the decision to not live in Miami when you left and to continue to not
3: live there and 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 speculating that to some extent and you hinted at it already by not living there does Miami become the mythic place
1: to yeah. you,
0: like Havana was to your parents and grandparents. It's, it's the one they got
1: away. <laughs> no, I went through, real quickly, I went through a series of episodes. I went to Cuba, sort of had this realization, well, that's all fine and dandy and cool and amazing and blah, blah. And it filled up half of the half of me that was missing. But then the other half was still the other half, so it didn't fill the whole of me. So I said, well, might as well, let's move to America. And I got a job, <laughs> I got a job, my first teaching job in Hartford, Connecticut. And I still sort of thought, I mean, we we're, I never think I'd left Miami. I think I went to Cuba before I even ever left Miami. Um, we're working class, poor family. And we didn't travel. Um, uh, I said, I, like, wow, America, sleigh rides in the snow. Me and Martha Stewart doing arts and crafts every Tuesday in Westport. Um, oh, you know, oh, say can you see, God bless America. I mean, Lucy had a, Ricky had a farm in Connecticut. Um, so <laughs> I thought I was going to go find it. Um, And, of course, that didn't work out. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, okay, that fantasy doesn't quite work out about home. Then I started started traveling a lot with that same question in my head. And finally, I did move to D.C. I moved moved to Guatemala, moved to D.C., and then moved back to Miami, thinking, well, this is the only place that really understands this animal, right? That in-between space. And there's a poem that started the third book, which I read on the radio today, Looking for the Gulf Motel, which... And it was, it was like the, my, my Miami was gone. So I didn't leave. I, the Miami I know is, only exists like my parents, the Cuba they know in memory. It's still there, but it's not there. You know, It's, just, it's like a deja vu feeling. This Miami has changed so much. And so I realized that, that, that my parents' story was more universal than I even thought. We all lose, right? As Elizabeth Bishop says, I've lost two cities, lovely ones. <laughs> and vaster two continents, you know, so that we all have another place where we're, we're common is that we always have that engagement with place. Nothing stays the same, nothing gold can stay as Robert Frost said, and, and so I couldn't go back into that space, and that's why leaving was a little bit easier. than then, then I said, well, I still, when I moved to Maine, I still had sort of a little bit of that, maybe the Brady Bunch house is in Maine, because Maine is really out there. And again, for diversity, like I said today on the radio, I moved to Maine for the diversity. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like apple pies, I'm like stoop. One...
0: Uh, you, ma'am, you, sir, and
1: then And the poem, okay.
2: I came this evening looking for Killing Mark. Oh, okay. <laughs> I happened to be in Maine and New Hampshire this summer and noticed in the local paper that you were reading Oh, so my 16-year-old granddaughter was staying with me. I said, we have to go and oh, hear beautiful. him. We went to Denmark
1: Oh, okay. and heard you read. Oh, yes, And I? my
2: 16-year-old granddaughter, who is, doesn't know a lot about poetry, loved that poem. That was the highlight. Good. of her. She <laughs> could connect mark. with that. And so this is part of her Christmas gift this year. Oh,
1: excellent. I'll be sure to sign it. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Two questions. Um, our daughter attended a symposium in Havana, maybe 10 years, at the uh, University of the Americas, and I wonder if you've ever spoken there. And the other part is this city and this library in particular has a strong connection to Edgar Allen Poe, and I was wondering if Poe was an influence for you.
1: Um the, um, no, I've never, I've never gone to Cuba in any official capacity. Um, I always just go with my mommy. Um, I never go easy, you know, as a tourist. I go to, I stay with my family, and it's, and it's, and it's a weird bittersweet thing because I, there's some people who aren't even Cuban go to Cuba, and I've seen more about Cuba than I do. <laughs> so, because you don't go as a tourist, your family doesn't want to. They're like, what are you gonna go see that crap for? Like, um, because it's the most beautiful cemetery in the world, maybe. (laughs) Or because, like, you know, it's where they make the best tobacco in the world, the best cigars in the world. So, it's always a weird thing. But I've gotten to know Cuba more or less. Edgar Allen Poe, not necessarily. Um, I... I, one of my favorite poems ever was watch me get this wrong, but Annabelle Lee yeah. <laughs> and I've always remembered that nothing can ever dissever my soul from the beautiful Annabelle, Annabelle Lee and it, it, now that you made me think, it was one of those quiet, one of those moments earlier in life, high school where it did have sort of this little dump with poetry T.S. Eliot was one, individual poems not bodies of work, as much as one can have an affair with poetry in high school, you know you, you don't always have the capacity for that, for, that kind of, um, for that kind of stuff at that age. But that was one of the little blips on my, on my poetic heart. So, All right, and then the poem? yeah. Okay, so uh, let me read this and I'll read you just a, a couple of uh, paragraphs of uh, something I wrote up and it's uh, what's going on on there with sitting next to my mother. In the moment I feel America standing as one putting differences aside and taking a deep collective breath we pay tribute to something far bigger and more important than any one of us though I truly feel like one of us one of we, the people in the echoes of the president's and others' speeches I embrace America in a way I never had or thought I could feeling for the first time that I belong truly belong to one country. Not an imaginary ideal from TV or a nostalgic island floating in the sea of my parents' memories, but a real, tangible place that is mine, was mine all along. I turn to my mother and whisper, Mama, I think we're finally Americanos. She gives me a tender look as if saying, I know. I know. Senator Schumer introduces me and calls me up to the podium. My mother squeezes my shoulder. I stand more confident than I imagined I would or could be, transfixed by the moment that is no longer about me or my poem or my glory, but about our country. Still, I'm surprised when the president and vice president stand up to greet me and shake my hand on the way to the podium. They both whisper something in my ear that I can't make out (laughs) but their gracious gestures speak silently to my heart, silently, as if saying, Richard, here is your country. This is your story, here, your home. I step up to the podium, look out over the crowd, a patchwork quilt of lives, of stories spread across our ground, under our sky, beneath our one sun. I take it all in as I take one deep breath, then another. This is for them. This is for us. This is for all of us, I think to myself, and begin speaking into our wind. Mr. President... Mr. Vice President, America won today. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the great lakes, spreading a simple truth across the great plains, then charging over the Rockies. One light, waking up rooftops under each one a story told by our silent gestures moving behind windows my face, your face, millions of faces in morning's mirrors each one yawning to life, crescendoing to our day, pencil yellow school buses The rhythm of traffic lights, fruit stands, apples, limes, and oranges Arrayed like rainbows, begging our praise Silver trucks, heavy with oil or paper, bricks or milk Teeming over highways alongside us On our way to clean tables, read ledgers, or save lives to teach geometry or ring up groceries as my mother did for 20 years so I could write this poem for us today. All of us. As vital as the one light we move through. The same light on blackboards with lessons for the day. Equations to solve. History to question. Or atoms imagined. The I have a dream we keep dreaming, or the impossible vocabulary of sorrow that won't explain the empty dust of 20 children marked absent today and forever. Many prayers, but one light. Breathing color into stained glass windows, life into the faces of bronze statues, warmth onto the steps of our museums and park benches as mothers watch their children slide into the day. One ground, our ground, rooting us to every stalk of corn, every head of wheat sown by sweat and hands, hands gleaning coal or planting windmills in deserts and hilltops that keep us warm hands digging trenches, hands routing pipes and cables, hands as worn as my father's cutting sugar cane so my brother and I could have books and shoes. The dust of our farms and deserts, our cities and plains mingled by one wind, our breath breathes. Hear it through the day's gorgeous din of honking cabs, buses launching down avenues, the symphony of footsteps, guitars, and screeching subways, the unexpected songbird on your clothesline. Hear squeaky playground swings and trains whistling or whispers across cafe tables. Hear the doors we open for each other all day, saying hello. Hello. Shalom, buongiorno, howdy, namaste, or buenos dias, in the language my mother taught me, in every language spoken into one wind carrying our lives without prejudice, as these words break from my lips. One sky. Since the Appalachians and Sierras claimed their majesty and the Mississippi and Colorado worked their way to the sea, thank the work of our hands, weaving steel into bridges, finishing one more report for the boss on time, stitching another wound or uniform, the first brushstroke on a portrait, or the last floor on the Freedom Tower jutting into a sky that yields to our resilience, one sky Toward which we sometimes lift our eyes tired from work some days guessing at the weather of our lives some days giving thanks for love that loves you back sometimes praising a mother who knew how to give or forgiving a father who couldn't give what you wanted and so We head home. Home. Through the gloss of rain or weight of snow or the plum blush of dusk. But always, always home. Always under one sky, our sky. And always one moon. Like a silent drum tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country. All of us facing the stars And hope, a new constellation, waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it, together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.